I'm amazed at the transcendence of the gospel. It can permeate different cultures and languages, promoting the one glory of Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal to even get a reflection of that this morning. Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 141, our senior pastor, Pat, is out for the week. And so we will diverge from our study in Romans, and we will be in Psalm 141. But, as Luke 24, 44 tells us, that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are fulfilled in Christ, we will indeed run to the cross, even from Psalm 141. We will stand in its shadow. Let me begin by reading Psalm 141. We'll pray and we'll begin. A Psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let not me eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayers continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Spirit of God, we ask that you would enlighten our eyes, open our minds. It's your ministry. Our Lord Jesus proclaimed in John 14 through 16 that you would be sent because of the work of Christ to point us to Christ that we may chiefly value Him, love, and adore Him. And so we'd ask that you would stir our hearts, awaken our hearts to love Christ. Rivet our minds and hearts' attention to Him, we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. Well, inside your body and mine, there is an amazing protection mechanism called the immune system. It's designed to defend you against millions of bacteria, microbes, toxins and parasites that would love to invade our bodies. Our body is made up of perhaps a hundred trillion cells. Each cell is a complicated machine with a nucleus. Now, some of these invading enemies include bacteria and viruses. A bacteria is a single-celled organism that has no nucleus. It's about one one one-hundredth the size of a human cell. And they are completely independent able to eat and reproduce, much like fish swimming in the ocean of our bodies. Now, bacteria invade the body by reproduction. They divide into two separate bacteria, becoming millions in just a few hours. Virus, on the other hand, are not really alive. It's a fragment of DNA and a protective coating. It comes in contact with our cell, attaches itself to the cell wall, and injects its DNA into the cell. The DNA then uses the machinery inside the living cell to reproduce new virus particles. Eventually, the hijacked cell dies and bursts, freeing the new virus particles. They bud off of the cell, 
so it remains alive and the cell becomes a factory for the virus. <laughs> you wonder where our horror movies come from. We just look inside our own bodies. <laughs> to understand the, a little bit the power of the immune system, at least for us lay folks, I think all we have to do is look at what happens when somebody dies. The immune system, when it is shut down, basically in a matter of hours, the body is invaded by all sorts of bacteria, microbes, and parasites. And once we die, it only takes a few weeks for these organisms to completely dismantle our body and carry it away until all that's left is a skeleton. So obviously our immune system is doing something quite remarkable to keep all that dismantling from happening when we're alive. Well, indeed we learn much about our immune system when we get sick or have some illness. We find out its strength or lack thereof and we try to boost it. Well, in Psalm 141, we get a picture of a believer's spiritual immune system through the lens of the Spirit's diagnosis. We could call this a case study on the spiritual immunity of the believer's life. Now, indeed, the text before us, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, it's for our edification. But as we mentioned in Luke 24, it is to rivet our attention on the glory of Christ, for he is the fulfillment even of the Psalms. And we'll keep that in mind as we evaluate and give a spiritual diagnosis of the heart and how to deal with it. A little bit of context I think would be helpful. Psalm 140, 141, 142, and 143 are characterized as being interwoven together. Many of the themes um, are very similar in each chapter. According to Psalm 142, in the title, which by the way is inspired, uh, it says, when David... A mask of David when he was in the cave, probably referring to the time he was on the run from Saul under duress, under intense persecution. In fact, we see in Psalm 141, verse 6, judges being thrown over the cliff and the people of God then responding to David, responding to his words as they are considered pleasant. That would befit the time when Saul and the princes were judged and... David was set up as ruler in the house of Israel. Do notice, though, the intense language of verse 7, describing being at the mouth of death, the mouth of Sheol. We see him using the statement in verse 8 of being poured out. Do not leave me defenseless. It literally is an idiom that means poured out, pouring out his soul unto death. This is intense trials and persecution. We may be asking, why would God allow a believer to endure such persecution and suffering? I think Psalm 139 enlightens us here. We see God's providential work over creation. We see his intimacy with, with the thoughts and the words of the believer. We see in verse 13, a person being formed even within the womb. So again, we see the ultimate and intimate providential work of God. Finally, in verse 19, David begins to cry out against the wicked. In verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. Enemies, take your name in vain. So he's describing God's providential work and then turns to God's providence even in the approach of his enemies. But then he says this in verse 23. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Indeed, the text itself tells us that God knows our thoughts from afar. He knows our words before we even express them upon the tongue. 
But there's a sense in which in his providence and through trials, he visits and he searches the heart and he tries the thoughts to see if there be any misleading way within the heart in order that God would then lead us in the way everlasting. And so God uses a war, if you will, on the outside so that we might deal with the war on the inside. We are going to look at four spiritual strategies for making war on the heart. And we find that in verse 4 of Psalm 141, just to help you know where we're going. Where David prays, don't let my heart incline to any evil. And so the psalm begins to direct attention at strategies that are to deal with the heart. Why? Well, if we walked through the psalm, we'd see that David and the believer expressed in this journal, this diary, desires to partake in the fellowship of God's presence, verses 1 and 2. He wants to guard against evil practice in verse 3 and 4. He desires the refreshment of believers, verse 5. He desires to escape the justice of God's righteous dealings, verse 6 and 7. He desires to find delight in the Lord, verse 8, and to find protection in the Lord, verses 9 through 10. And so for this reason, he wants to make war on the heart. Now, before we look at these strategies, we probably should examine the condition of the heart so that we may have a sense of urgency and maybe begin to grasp why David begins the way he does and doesn't begin as we often do. Lord, let me escape from the traps. Remove the circumstances. Why does he start the way he does? Well, the heart. The Bible reveals the creator's revelation on the nature of of mankind. And we observe that a human being is both immaterial and material, united together. The immaterial is the inner person, known as the heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit, and the conscience. Now, these are not different faculties or compartments within the inner person. I don't go open this closet and there's the heart and over here is the mind and over here is the soul. But rather, a multi-perspective on the inner person. So when God's word examines the inner person relationship to spiritual understanding, the mind. When God's word analyzes an inner person as a spiritual being in relation to God and views a person holistically, that is who you are, soul, spirit. And when the word identifies that inner person in, in sense of the moral and spiritual control center, the steering wheel and mechanism that directs the life, the heart. What is the condition of this heart? I'd like to take you to four texts, help you see the urgency of the heart. Start with me in Jeremiah 17, verse 5. A few books to your right. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. The heart is diagnosed by God's word as being deceitful, and thus it puts its trust in cursed flesh. 17.5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. There's a diagnosis of a heart that turns away from the Lord. It puts its trust in the flesh. In fact, verse 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so in verse 10, again, he cries out to the Lord to search the heart, to deal with the fruit of the heart. It's interesting, the heart is deceitful above all things. So, as John Piper rightly says, sin is worse than the devil. Let us look inward first. 
before trying to find the blame outward. It is deceptive. You can jot this verse down. Proverbs 28, 26 says, The one who trusts in his own mind or heart is a fool because the heart's deceitful. I don't want to put trust in it. The heart, secondly, is wicked, and therefore the thoughts and intentions are corrupt. Uh, turn with me to Genesis 6.5. And notice the placement of the thoughts and intentions rooted in the heart. Genesis 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention, that's his motivations, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this wicked heart affects the thoughts and intentions. Thirdly, the heart is darkened. Go to Romans chapter 1 verse 21. It is darkened so that it steals the glory of God and idolizes his attributes in mortal creatures. You see this in Romans 1.21. It's a condition of a darkened heart. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the darkened heart does not give God honor and praise, does not see the fullness of deity in him but steals conceptually in the thoughts, his power and his beauty, and puts it in creaturely things. And the rest of the text tells us we become enslaved to it. And finally, in Christ's words in Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse 17, we find Christ's diagnosis. You start with verse 16, Matthew 15, verse 16, as he's addressing the disciples, the 12. I'll pick up with 16. You can catch me. Verse 17, and he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It's rooted in the heart. It comes out of the heart. It's not the external. The heart has to be dealt with. Now, what we often struggle with as professing believers is how a regenerated believer can be described as having such a heart. Can we not trust our hearts now that we're saved? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Where does sin come from? The heart. So we can take the understanding of Scripture that while we've been regenerated and have a new nature and the work of the Holy Spirit... We must act upon the heart. It's a steering wheel. It's a mechanism. It needs to be turned. How is that accomplished? And that takes us to Psalm 141. There's an urgency to deal with the heart. In the midst of suffering, David's pleas and take away the circumstance. The plea is, Lord, don't incline my heart. So what is he concerned about? First spiritual strategy for making war in the heart is the reckoning of God. The reckoning of God. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted, weighed out, viewed, established as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. This call is a prayerful 
declaration of the Lord. And he addresses the Lord as Yahweh, the covenant-saving-keeping God. He is the self-existent one, the I am. It stresses his independence. He's above us. But notice that David addresses Yahweh, this self-existent God, who's also a saving and a covenant-keeping God, calls upon the Lord to draw near. He doesn't say, I come to you. He says, Lord, draw near to me. And so we ask the question, how can the I am, the self-existent one, draw near to sinners? Psalm 66.18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28.9, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 15.8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Make matters worse, we look at Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and we see the Lord looking down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And this is the diagnosis of the text. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so we ask again, how could we, sinners, draw near to God? How could he draw near to us? That's what David is saying in verse 2 when he says, let my prayer. Prayer underlines access to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How can I draw near to the holy, righteous God while I a sinner? Spurgeon, to correct our view of prayer, in his book, The Power of Prayer in a Believer's Life, says this, true prayer is an approach of the soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. The spiritual or true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. Not only must he, the great high priest, go within the veil for us, but through his crucified person, the veil must be entirely taken away. Until then, we are shut out of the living God. And he says this so poignantly, the man who, despite the teaching of Scripture tries to pray without a savior, insults the deity. The man who imagines that his own natural desires, unsprinkled by the precious blood, will be an acceptable sacrifice before God, makes a mistake. How would this holy God draw near to me to tend my heart? The reckoning of God. This is why David begins this way. He says, let my prayer, verse 2, be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. Be counted, established, to fix, to found. The English translators placed the little word as incense before you, underlining equivalence. That is, his prayer is that God would look at his prayer life in accordance with the sacrifice that God would count and establish his prayer, incense and sacrifice. Incense was an offering of fine flour with oil and frankincense. It was burnt upon the altar. It was added to the burnt offering, the lamb, which was offered every morning and evening. You see this in Leviticus 1 through 2. The burnt offering was offered as an atonement or a substitute in behalf of the sinner. It was a declaration that the guilt of sin required death. The penalty of sin 
As Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Paul in Ephesians 5.2 connects this to Christ. As the Old Testament underlines these portrayals that find the reality and the substance of Christ's work. Ephesians 5.2 says this of Christ. He gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. David's been on the run. He has no access to the tabernacle or the sacrifices. Yet he rightly understands that God must establish his prayer with respect to a substitute atonement. For otherwise he cannot draw near to God, nor God draw near to him. And I believe we can carry this a little further. Not only does God reckon his prayer, his access in light of a substitute sacrifice in dealing with his sin, but also in light of righteousness. Look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32. David is running to God in the midst of sin. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't hide it. Instead, I exposed it and ran to you for the covering. 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered or atoned for. Describing, again, a substitute sacrifice. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You see, it is based upon the sacrifice, the work of the substitute lamb, pointing to Christ, as Ephesians 5.2 says. That there's the foundation that God credits the righteousness of Christ to the count of those who believe in him, who lay out their sin and shame and guilt. Romans 4, Paul takes this text and gives us a gospel understanding that David looked to Christ, just as Abraham did, believed in his work, and God applied the sin of David to the cross, credited to the cross where it's paid for. And the righteous obedience of Christ is applied to David's account by faith to have a righteous standing before God. This, beloved, is the believer's greatest spiritual weapon against sin. That we depend upon God's view, God's reckoning. That through faith and the promised salvation of God, the believer is credited, accounted, viewed by God with the righteousness of Christ. And through Christ's substitutionary work, the sinner's guilt is credited, accounted, viewed by God, legally transacted to Christ, paid for. And this is what is pleasing to God. Because it holds high the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost, to the end of eternity, if there is an end, which there is not. That's the point. The uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him. That's His work. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Because Christ finished His work and accomplished salvation, He now ever lives is our high priest, interceding the benefits that he has procured because of his finished work. This is David's boast. This is the first weapon against the heart. It's to take the gospel to the heart. David is preaching the gospel to his heart. Spurgeon continues, My heart, be sure that you prostrate yourself in such a presence. If he is so great, place your mouth in the dust before him, for he is the most powerful of all kings. 
His throne has sway in all worlds. Heaven obeys him cheerfully. Hell trembles at his frown. And earth is constrained to yield him worship, willingly or unwillingly. His power can create or destroy. Think, oh, we have access to the holy God? And we declare that in our prayer? He continues, The Lord High Chamberlain of the palace above, our Lord Jesus Christ takes care to alter and amend every prayer before he presents it to his Father. He makes the prayer perfect with his perfection and prevalent with his own merits. God looks upon the prayers presented through Christ and forgives all its own inherent faultiness. Beloved, when we pray, we are making a declaration that Christ has finished his work and brought us to God. When we pray, we are declaring that the glory of Christ as our mediator is what we cling to, love, and adore. We're declaring that only, only in Christ can we stand before God. We're confessing our own unworthiness and His worthiness. We're declaring that we are sinners, God is righteous, and Christ is our righteousness. And until we look at the substitutionary work of Christ upon which we are reckoned in Christ, we are not ready to wage war in the heart. We will assume our own moralism and self-righteousness. We will compare ourselves to others and better ourselves. We will blame others when we do sin as our scapegoat. We will establish our own interpretation and view of self. We will underestimate our sin and we will devalue the glory of Christ. It starts here. Daily proclaiming the gospel to the heart. Secondly, second strategy. So we proclaim the reckoning of God and second, the redirection of the heart. The redirection of the heart. In verse 3 and 4, he examines the fruit of the heart, verse 3, and then runs right to the heart. And so we see this. Set a guard, O Yahweh, (laughs) this self-existent one, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And I keep having to underline this self-existent one because who would think that he... God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer, the sovereign, the potentate, would dare pay attention to my lips. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, is at the throne room of God and sees the thrice holy God in all his glory and yet not able to take it in. Revealed and even in the shadows, he could see it and while he was on the dust of the ground. And he cries out, I am undone. My being is ripping apart. Because I'm a man with unclean lips. He understood that the heart expresses itself through the thinking. The heart betrays us as it speaks in our thoughts and erupts from our mouth. Does it not? When the trials press in on our heart, do not your thoughts betray your heart? It does mine. Where did that come from? Why am I grumbling? I would deserve to be in hell right now. And I'm, I'm breathing the air that he's providing here. And I, I have got it. I'm discontent. I'm coveting. And we preach the gospel to our hearts. He says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch. The picture is that of a soldier standing guard over the lips, brandishing his weapons, not guarding what may go in, but what would come out. Keep watch stresses one who is observing with an intent of guarding. It carries the idea of someone who stands in a watchtower Eyes riveted on the horizon for the approach of the enemy. And he looks intently for the movement of dust and the glint of flashing steel. This he prays, Lord, act as such a guard. For this is how the heart is betrayed. 
springs its traps. We ask, Lord, stand guard for thoughts and words that betray a devaluing of your substitutionary work. How could I, a believer, confess allegiance to my own human merit and pay penance with my own sacrifices? How can I depend upon any other Savior? Lord, stand guard over my thoughts and words that would betray my passion for my own self-sufficiency. I had the opportunity this week, Friday to be exact, to preside as a pastor over a funeral. And I'm standing there preaching the gospel while the deceased literally is an elbow away. I brought my son so he could be impacted by just the visual of death and the grieving and the need for the gospel, preaching as a dying man to dying men and women. But it was interesting, they, as we were moving to the gravesite, they had said, well, you, you can go between the leading car and the hurts. I thought, so kind of leading here, representing this group. And I turned to my class. We've had a, a bird bomb. <laughs> it's pretty nasty. Some birds that let loose must have had uh, some serious stomach problems. And I just thought, oh, I'm representing this entourage here, and uh, that's not good. David, leading the people of God, leading his family, is concerned about the external. I was praying that they wouldn't judge the ministry of the gospel. I mean, the car was driving. You know, you're worried about those external things. And David understands that the heart leaks out of the mouth. Guard it represents his heart. Well, he makes war on the heart. How so? Well, in verse 4, he depends upon the Lord's sovereign grace to control the heart. He says this, Do not let my heart incline or bend or turn to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds and company with men who work iniquity, and let not me eat of their delicacies. He has just proclaimed dependence to his heart in verse 2 with the, with the gospel, underlining substitutionary sacrifice. You see, it is in the ministry of the gospel to reveal our dependence upon the Lord, to recall to mind the reckoning of God, the view of God in light of the atonement. It is in daily declaring our need through the gospel that our heart is steered. As Psalm 15, 2 says, the righteous speak truth in the heart. Or Galatians 6, 14, Paul says the antidote for dealing with the flesh is to boast in the cross, to boast in Christ, for it crucifies the flesh with its passions and desires. And so David here isn't saying, well, I'm now going to steer my own heart. He's just proclaimed the reckoning of God in light of the sacrifice. And now he turns to the Lord, Lord, I lay my heart before you, steer it. He comes then dependently, not assuming his own self-righteousness and self-dependence. He then depends upon the Lord to control the practice. Verse 4, because when the heart is steered, it, it steers then the thoughts and the behavior. It says, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. Jesus in Matthew six twenty one says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. The heart's deceitful, so we're going, Where, where's my heart today? And we look at the treasure. Where's the thoughts? Where's the behavior? What have I been running to? We proclaim the gospel to the heart. We may treasure Christ and be steered to him. Notice how the heart captures the behavior. He looks to God's control over the desires, the end of verse 4. Let me not eat of their delicacies, allurements, appeals, 
trinkets that are pleasing to the eyes, mouth-watering refreshments. You see, a war on the heart is a war on the treasure of the heart, the desires of the heart. This is where the heart seduces us into thinking that there is something good and pleasant ultimately to be found outside of the person and work of God. And so David begins with one and two, seeing afresh the holiness of God and his sinfulness and looks to the sacrifices that point straight to Christ. Beloved, when we run our hearts through the cross to incline and steer our heart and to replace our passions with Christ, you see, what the cross does is it declares our sinful lust as the murder of God. It shows us the cross, the murder of Christ. That's our end game in every covetous thought and every sinful deed. But it also declares his righteousness by which we stand and we need. And so we begin to see the gospel proclaims the fullness of the deity of Christ to capture our hearts. Because all the divine attributes are Christ. His beauty, glory, love, power, wisdom, holiness, omnipresence are infinite and eternal in value. What finite, what mortal creature can compare to Christ? It is a candle compared to the infinite glories of Jesus Christ. John Flavel, his writing, set of sermons called The Fountain of Life, says this about the glory of Christ as opposed to the dimming candle of a finite world says this, but let me tell you, the whole world is not a theater large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or unfold the one half of the unsearchable riches that lie hid in him. These things will be far better understood and spoken of in heaven by the noonday divinity. Alas, I write his praises, but by moonlight, I cannot praise him so much as by halves. What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. When we've borrowed metaphors from every creature that has any excellency or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory, when we have worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him, alas, we've done nothing when all is done. He says, it is horrid and amazing to see how the minds of many are captivated and ensnared by every silly trifle. Christ is the peerless pearl hid in the field. Will you be that wise merchant that resolves to win and compass that treasure, whatever it shall cost you? Christ is a commodity that can never be bought too dear. I love that statement. We can't comprehend the glory of Christ. It waits till the divine illumination in heaven. And so we're taking excellency from creation and just trying to compare these shadows to the glory of Christ. David understands that the war on the heart is a heart of allurements and desire. And so scripture lays before us the beauty and glory of Christ. You say, where's that? Verse 8. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. His eyes are fixed on the Lord, riveted upon him to safeguard and keep his heart. Thirdly, the rebuke of righteousness. We, we evidently need help to see this beautific vision of Christ, to keep our eyes riveted upon him. And so in verse 5, he says this, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. 
Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. The ideas of a hammer or an anvil striking down. It's a rod of reproof, of correction. David's prayer is that the righteous, if they see him with a wandering heart, evidence in the fruit of his life, begin to wander away from the glories of Christ, from the vision of of the Lord in verse 8, that the righteous would come alongside and strike him on the head because there is no greater glory than the glory of God. He says, it's a kindness. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Oil was used as an offering of joy and refreshment, whether it be the anointing of a king or worn as perfume or used medicinally. Why would this rebuke be kindness and refreshment? Because in verse 5, he says, my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. I understand the nature of sin, and I hate it, and I despise it, and I don't want to be seduced into it. I want the heart to lay the breadcrumbs, to lead me away with these little thoughts of contentiousness and bitterness and covetousness that would eventually lead me away from the glory of Christ. There's also not only the reality of evil, but the reality of justice. Justice will be served, verse 6. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. Understanding that justice will be served. In light of that, Lord, don't let me wander into the paths of the wicked and join them. I mean, you say, how can you have this kind of mindset? I mean, it's just so tough for me to take rebuke, much less in hardship and difficulty. That's the last thing I would want. Not David, verse 7. He describes himself as being plowed and broken up like the earth, like a farmer that breaks up the hardened ground. And his bones scattered the mouth of Sheol at the point of death, at the end of himself. It's in this context that he's saying, bring him on. Let him lovingly, in kindness, rebuke. Bring it down on my head, for it is oil. That takes us to our fourth spiritual strategy. The refuge of God. The refuge of God. And here we'll drop down to verse 9 and 10 and then come back to verse 8. He sees a need for God's refuge in light of the snares of sin. Verse 9, keep me from the trap that they've laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Sin enslaves. Sin entraps. The sinful heart is busy spreading its web of lies in order to victimize its prey, us. It's the corruption of the human heart. Psalm 131 says, They shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So in light of the danger and the snare of sin of which the wicked will fall into, he then prays this in verse 8. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. Now he's changed the title of God here, the name of God. He just uh, is ascribing to God uh, the fact that he's master. There's a master-servant relationship. It's lowercase L-O-R-D, Adonai. The uppercase L-O-R-D, Yahweh. It's a helpful note as you reading through the Psalms in the Old Testament. He's describing this master-servant relationship. Why would he do this? Because he's underlining that he finds refuge in God. It is a covenantal relationship. Let me describe it this way. In the ancient Near East, when a lesser king could not afford protection for his village, especially in a time of coming war, he would turn to a greater king or emperor to seek entrance into a covenant relationship with that emperor. 
The emperor would often annex the villages into his kingdom so that the people of the lesser king would become the people of the emperor. He would be their emperor. He would own the rights of their land, their homes, and in short, their lives. But these were not merely legal covenants. They involved great affection. The emperor was viewed as a great father adopting this village whom he had liberated from danger. He was not just obeyed, but loved and adored and reverenced and honored. And it is this that David is describing in the word Adonai, master. And in the statement here, it is so precious to us, as we're familiar in the New Testament, in you, in unity with you, I find refuge. Refuge, a a declaration of faith and dependence, a resting in all that he provides. This is the salvation covenant that unites believers with the work of Christ. How can we be declared righteous? How can we be reckoned by God in view of the sacrifice? Because through His sacrifice, He unites us with Himself. We see these themes in Ephesians, in which we see the statement, In Him we have redemption. In Him we have an inheritance. And in verse 20 through 21, Ephesians 1 says this, undergirding again this emperor's mighty work, In victory, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the covenant relationship. He's annexed us into his mighty, powerful work and vanquished all the enemies. Not only in this age, but the one to come. While we were yet enemies, we were enslaved to sin under the rule of the God of this world. Yet Christ came victorious and through his life, his death, his resurrection and his exaltation, he's subjugated everything underneath his authority. And we, beloved by faith, have been united with him in this salvation covenant called the new covenant. So that we are brought into his dominion to partake in his victory. And we adore him. As Brooks so fittingly brings us to a close, describing even these pictures of refuge in him. He says this, That is, if he said, you shall have as true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you. And my power shall be yours to protect you. And my wisdom shall be yours to direct you. And my goodness shall be yours to relieve you. And my mercy shall be yours to supply you and my glory shall be yours to crown you. This is a comprehensive promise for God to be our God. It includes it all. Luther says, God is mine and everything is mine. Lord, bring the gospel to our hearts. We declare to you our dependence. Remind us as we eat and we breathe that we are dependent creatures. Remind us of our spiritual dependence as well. We are not in control of our hearts, but we turn to you who is, and we run to the gospel that has the power to work within us, to sanctify us, to re-steer our hearts and recalibrate, realign our hearts to look upon the glory of Christ, although it is with a, a, a view that is yet in shadows, yet we, by faith, rest in the promise of one day seeing Christ and rejoicing in Him and cherishing Him as our victor and emperor for all eternity. 
So remind us of these things to keep our hearts and guard them. May they be yours. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.